Welcome to the Republican Professor. Today we have Dr. Paul Potter with us, PhD, uh, longtime uh, professor in at various places, <laughs> and uh, retired tenure professor, and also a retired minister. True. And uh, he's joining us from his home in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Yes. We're happy to have you. Welcome, Paul. Thank you, Dr. Lucas Mather. <laughs> so we had a different Paul coming on after Easter. I thought that was uh, his. Oh, you know what? That's the Paul from the Bible. Never mind. <laughs> if, if you he get had an get associates you. from Tarsus Community College. Oh, OK. Well, okay. anyway, okay. Um, Paul. Yeah. Start from the beginning. Let's. Uh, Let's get a sense for the overview of your life, the major life events, so that people can have the whole thing in mind. And then when you start filling in the details, so okay. you were born. Let me guess. I'm just I'm just going to throw a, a location out there: Long Beach, California. Yep, the left. Is that a pretty coach. good. Okay, that's a pretty good guess. Awesome. Yep. Um. My second guess was going to be short beach. So I'm glad I, I, <laughs> well, it's I, long. I, I rolled the dice and it was long beach. Okay. There you so, go. And, but you didn't stay there very long because you're, it was the great depression. It was 1938. A war was on the horizon with Japan and Chamonix. And um, we won that war. Thank God. Mm -hmm. You uh, found yourself growing up where? Did you grow up somewhere? Where did you graduate from high school? Uh, always kind of referred to my early childhood as being a Navy brat. We traveled all over the United States with dad in World War II. How many, how many high schools we, did you go to? We, we settled in Dallas, Texas, hmm. and I went to two high schools. Okay. Um, I feel very strongly about technical schools mm -hmm. and uh, we could spend time on that, but uh, I went to a technical high school in downtown Dallas. Is that where you graduated? Nope. After two years there, we uh, moved as a family uh -huh. and I was in a fairly new school called South Oak Cliff. And um, that's where I graduated. I actually dropped out of school for one semester uh, during my school years, I skipped a year, dropped out of school, but still ended up graduating with my graduating class. Oh, wow. Got out of, got out of uh, high school. What? So tell me what the, the town was? Dallas. Oh, in, in the city of Dallas. Dallas. Mm -hmm. okay. And um, a, a suburb of Dallas I've, is Oak Cliff. That and that's where I ended up in South Oak Cliff. Had four scholarships offered to uh, universities, but we did not have a uh, uh, history of uh, colleges and universities in our family. And I really didn't appreciate what scholarships meant. So mm. instead of going to college right away, I went into the Air Force for the <laughs> next four years. Uh, but that was good. Uh, I wanted to be a pilot, wanted to fly. When I went into a basic training, they uh, did the evaluation, shoved across the desk to me, my choice of Air Force specialty codes. And uh, 
my very first choice choice was something you'd be familiar with. It was a language school in Monterey, California. But um, got called home on emergency leave. We had a death in the family. When I got back, I found out that they had filled that school and I was number eight on the overage. So instead of going to language school, I went to personnel school and uh, became a clerk typist. Isn't that exciting? Um, somewhere- Very, I, very exciting. Yeah, I got, when I was in my early 20s and I was stationed at um, headquarters 12th Air Force, which was an off-campus uh, installation in Waco, Texas. And I was doing- What, what, part, of, what part of Waco? Uh, it was I'm, kidding, I'm the, kidding, I'm kidding. West, west side of town. Was, I'm kidding. It was, okay. It's so small, you know, it, yes. it, would, it would stick out. Uh, uh, and James Connolly Air Force Base at that time was an active installation, but we were not on the base. So I got oh. off base uh, separate rations. And uh, Oh, you're lucky. Officers. Yep. Took you were lucky. You didn't yes, have to go to the yeah. chow hall? Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, got... Uh, uh, what year was that? Wow, this would have been um, 60s, 48, late 50s, 56, 57, 58. Okay. And uh, Eisenhower was president. Mm -hmm. Took the uh, officer's candidate school test, mm -hmm. placed very highly in that. But then during the physical, the last test on the physical was eye exam. And my eyes didn't pass the qualifications to be a pilot. Uh, so I applied for an early release because I didn't want to stay in the Air Force as an officer and not have my wings and be a pilot. And uh, got on the same day I got my acceptance yeah. to officer's candidate school, I also got my acceptance for an early release to go to college. Okay. Moved back to Dallas. Did um, you go to the same college for all four years? Nope. Started around for that too. Went to Arlington State College. I had taken some courses in the Air Force at Baylor, Armed Forces Institute. Uh, so I ended up with about 30 semester hours about the year after I was out of the Air Force. And uh, mm -hmm. then went a totally different direction. Went to a trade school, got uh, the uh, Federal Communications license for radio engineer, broadcasting uh, diploma and got into radio and, and eventually television. If you had to just tell me what your job in the Air Force was, you had to pick it, what was it? What was it? Fluid desk. <laughs> so answering, actually, answering phone calls, typing correspondence. I had, I had officer's records. I had about 3,000 officer's records. One of the most interesting was uh, Colonel Chuck Yeager. Hmm. And he was the what was his social one. security number? Let me let me get that down. Mine, four six three five two seven zero two eight. I know his his his. <laughs> I don't remember his. <laughs> well, we have yours now, so oh, there you go. Chuck his Yeager. Brother, wow. Brother. How come you had his record? Uh, he was a uh, squadron uh, commander in California. I think Luke Air, Air Force Base. And uh, he had been assigned there. That that, that Air Force Base is named him. after me. Yeah, there you go. I didn't know that. Um, Mather Air Force Base is too, but you know they. I don't know why they didn't just have one named Luke Mather Air Force Base. I don't. There understand. you go. Everybody mispronounces my 
Did they together. have a J? <laughs> I don't, you know, that's a good question. I don't know. They don't read very carefully, I guess. But no, they don't. They were so desperate to have an another name. And they, so anyway, but um, I'm happy to serve my country. Thank you. But Ch Chuck Yeager, uh, did you ever meet him? Never met him personally. Okay. Uh, was quite, he was, he was held back from getting his uh, star because, uh, uh, upper command said, well, you've done all these wonderful things in research, but you've never commanded a unit. Mm -hmm. And that's how he ended up with a, a squadron that he was a commander of. So it was when I got out of the Air Force and I saw the commercials he was doing for a battery company. I don't remember which battery company. And it was he was introduced as General Chuck Yeager. I said, yay, he made it. <laughs> all right. So uh you graduated undergrad from what university, what's college? Finally went back to school when I was 29 and went to a community college, brand new systems that were starting up across the country. Mm -hmm. And uh, Dallas County Community College got an associate's degree, went to a Southern Methodist University in Dallas right across from uh, town from yep. uh, the community college. Where the George Bush library is, George W. Yes. Bush. And I got a, two degrees there, got a Bachelor of Fine Arts and Master of Fine Arts in Broadcasting and Film. Oh, wow. So you spent quite a bit of time at Southern Methodist. Mm -hmm. Two years, uh, wearing several hats, one <laughs> full-time academic and uh, full-time in broadcasting and also part-time doing productions for an audiovisual firm. Now, an MFA, did you say it was an MFA? Yes, an MFA, for those who don't know, is it's not a cuss word. It's no. a master of fine arts. And that's a terminal degree, as I it recall, is. right? Okay. It is. So that that's a terminal. A ter can you explain what a terminal degree is to people? You've um, achieved the pinnacle within a discipline mm -hmm. and in the fine arts, uh, not necessarily wanting a they do have doctorates now, but at yeah. the time, it was a, a concentrated degree in one area. And that's why I, I liked the degree program at SMU. The bachelor's degree had literally 60 hours in my uh, field. And then plus the uh, Master of Fine Arts was, uh, and I was very fortunate. Uh, I already had a professional background, and so I was doing the syndicated radio program that represented Southern Methodists across the nation uh, for recruiting purposes. That's cool. And then I got a grant to do a student recruitment film for the university, which counted as my master's thesis. How did you get interested in fine arts? What, what was it? Was it something in your childhood? As a kid doing uh, uh, some drama work while I was at, uh, at church in Dallas. And uh, then in the Air Force itself, well, we could get off on a lot of tangents here, Lucas. You've already known that from previous conversations with me. I, um, I had a strong interest in scouting that was non-traditional, and that was the American Indian. Spent a lot of time up in Oklahoma and here in New Mexico with the uh, Kiowas and the Comanches and the Pueblo Indians uh, studying their dances and stories. And uh, when I got in the Air Force, uh, 
I was invited to be a member of Tops in Blue uh, doing entertainment and uh, Indian dancing. And uh, after I got out of the Air Force, I did some of the opening advertising for Six Flags over the Texas as uh, an Indian costume. Um, here in Albuquerque, New Mexico, Al Mamade, a uh, well-known Native American artist and his son, uh, Pulitzer Prize winning writer and a professor in Scott Mamade. He asked me to do the beaded headband for his war bonnet that he exhibited at the Gallup Intertribal. So being non-Indian and being involved in Indian stuff, I was invited it, uh, uh, by Disney to come out and be a part of Disneyland uh, in the early days and be in their Indian village. So preparing to do that. And they said, what tribe are you a member of? And I said, Dutch, English, Scott Irish, no Indian blood in me at all. So that short circuited that they offered a job as a gunfighter and I wasn't interested. Could have been in part of your early uh, uh, gun owners association in California, if I'd have done that, maybe. So you were, what year was the Disney thing? Hmm, that was uh, before college and university. So that would have been. Um, That's your 20s. Yeah, I was in my 20s, mid 20s. Yeah, okay. So anyway, went so, back to college. So, wait, so, so they thought you were an Indian and that's why they brought you out. From the pictures, yeah. So, um, that's, you that, that's how you got, that's how you got interested in fine art was the Indian stuff. Yeah, I was, I, I was good at beadwork and design and uh, dancing and performance. And it was the costumes and the stories that appealed to me, telling a story, mm -hmm. uh, entertaining folk. Yeah. And, uh, so well, that's interesting. I didn't know that angle that you had for fine art, yeah. but it was actually the Indians that helped you out with that. Hmm. So, all right. So, so in other, any, in other words, you, you got all the way to, to Disney and then you were racially discriminated against. I was <laughs> lost a job because of your race, but they offered an alternative. I could old, be a good, good old white supremacy. <laughs> that good old white supremacy. Um, yeah. The gunfighter because people with guns are from England. <laughs> Interesting. I'm trying to, track that but anyway okay that's awesome that's interesting um that's very interesting so okay so you tell us about after uh southern methodist university you got okay. your, you have your mfa what what next MFA. uh back then job searches were considerably different than today i just started calling schools within a, a 50 mile radius of the dallas fort worth area Texas Christian University, Arlington State College and others. And um, University of North Texas was looking for somebody as uh, an adjunct. And uh, you've done a lot of adjunct work. So uh, I was still working in broadcasting in the Dallas market. Uh, Denton was 30 miles away. And uh, so I accepted a two semester slot as, uh, and, and when they hired me, instead of putting it as an adjunct, they put me as a guest lecturer, which paid more and it was a better position. And uh, I found out that North Texas at the time was starting a program, a PhD, and it was a, uh, 
I, I didn't know at the time, but it was I was in the initial cohort of a college PhD, college teaching. So you would get half of your hours, semester hours in education designed toward uh, college teaching and half of your hours in your discipline. Well, after the first year- and the discipline was? Uh, the discipline was going to be speech communication and drama, gotcha. uh, but with an emphasis, a strong skew toward radio, television, and film. Interesting thing happened the, at the end of the first year, the Washington Senators baseball team was moving to Dallas and becoming the Texas Rangers. Bill Mercer, who was on faculty at North Texas, had been doing play-by-play -play for a team called the Dallas Cowboys on the weekends. Well, he applied for and got the position as the announcer for the uh, Texas Rangers. He could not do the Texas Rangers and travel with them and also continue on faculty at North Texas. So I slipped from being uh, an instructor into being, uh, I mean, from being a guest lecturer to being an instructor in the Department of uh, Speech Communication and Drama. They wanted me to develop the programming in radio, television, and film. And in doing so, I got two credits. I would develop these programs and submit them to education as a model and get credit there and also get it in speech communication. So I kind of finagled a PhD. Wow. For how those long, how long the did guys that take? like you that do such awesome work and work so hard, I finagled mine. I got <laughs> how long did that take? Uh, I completed all coursework except one uh, in the uh, first three years. And that's and then, teaching full-time, working in broadcasting, and also studying. Well, how, how long did the whole thing take, including the dissertation? The whole thing took eight years. Mm -hmm. Because it, at, at, the end of, at the end of three years at North Texas, I discovered I could not get tenure and be working on my doctorate there. It was called inbreeding. And I also had a senior faculty member. He says, Paul, with all due respect you should have been hired in the professorial ranks instead of as an instructor because you have a terminal degree, yeah. the MFA. Yeah. But I'd started working on the doctorate and they overlooked the fact that it was an MFA and they wouldn't give me tenure. So I- uh, uh, Sorry to hear that. Well, it was good. It was, it was one of God's things because I ended why, up- why, why do you say that it was good and it was one of God thing, God's things? Okay. Because I got this crumpled up piece of paper in my mailbox. And it was a job advertisement for Stephen F. Austin State University in East Texas. And down at the bottom of it, my department chair had written, they looked at your resume when they wrote this job description, I hope you don't leave us. Well, he did that at the same time I had gotten my, <laughs> that I wasn't going to get tenure. And so I called Dr. Ramsey at Stephen F. Austin State University in East Texas. We had lunch at a Holiday Inn and by the time I left the luncheon, I was hired as an assistant professor at Stephen F. Austin. And so the next semester, I moved there and started teaching. And that was six years I spent there. Do you remember what you had for lunch there? Don't have a clue. <laughs> it's, it's, it's now an apartment complex in Nacogdoches, Texas. But anyway, that's where, where the job was offered and I accepted. Congratulations. Thank and you. you spent six years there, right? 
six years, uh, excellent years. I became a Christian while I was there. Tell us about that. What, how did you become a Christian? I grew up in church. Sometimes that can be deceptive. You, uh, what church? Uh, Baptist. And uh, most of my years were spent at First Baptist Church in Dallas, which is S- the time Southern Baptist. Largest, yeah. First Baptist was the largest Baptist church in the world. Dr. W.A. Criswell was my uh, pastor. No kidding. Wow, he's famous. He knew me my, my nickname and spent time visiting with him. He, uh, I was also in scouting, Luke, and uh, got my God and Country Award. He was my mentor for that when I was a teenager. Uh, I was there on the Sunday morning that Billy Graham joined at First Baptist in Dallas because Billy said he needed a pastor, and he chose Dr. Criswell for his church and for his pastor. I did not know that. So you went to the same church that Billy Graham went to? When he was in town, because he did a lot of traveling, as you're well aware. Anyway, I I grew up... Well, did he live there? No, he lived in North Carolina. Gotcha. Okay. Um. Had an encounter with God when I was, uh, this was 1974. Uh, the short story is I was becoming a very good Pharisee. Uh, can I just back up really quick? So when you grew up in church yeah. and stuff up to this time, you believed in God? I did. You, you believe God exists, so you weren't an atheist. No. But you're saying you were not a Christian. I was not committed to Christ. Were you Jewish? Nope. Muslim? I, I, I was a religious person. Okay. Strong religious spirit, not, not a spiritual person. Uh, I, in fact, I was doing things in God's name. I was preaching. I, uh, there was a period of time I produced the Baptist Hour for the Southern Baptist Convention. As a non-Christian? Non-Christian, but if you would ask me, I'd have probably said yes. I'm a member of a church. I'm you, Baptist. I'm. Did you pray? You know, went through the motions, the words. We can do the Lord's Prayer as part of the liturgy and really not believe mm-hmm. in God Himself. Right. I would say it this way. I think if if I had stood before Him, my judgment, I said, Lord, I would have done all these things in Your name, and He would have said, Depart from me. I never knew You. So it's that intimate relationship, uh, committing uh, your heart and soul in your deepest innermost being and having that faith in him that I had not had until um, I was 36 years old. So Nacogdoches was good for that. Conversion. uh, Conversion's a good thing. Yep. Uh, But but, uh, the conversion, though, I mean, what was, was there an event? Was what 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 was it why then why why there okay i'd been doing a lot of study um, a lot of reading Mm -hmm. the night before my conversion experience i was reading sheldon's in his steps there's a and this is the book that uh, originated the what would jesus do so all these people in this church were, some of them were taking a, a vow of, I would not do anything unless I would first ask, what would Jesus do? And the bishop came to town to see what was happening, the strange experiences at this church. And the night 
uh, he went to his hotel and this would be in the 1800s, no air conditioning, windows open. He's looking out over this rectangle and there's a night watchman making his rounds, checking the doors and the night watchman is singing, must Jesus bear the cross alone and all the world go free. I closed the book about two o'clock in the morning. Next morning, got up early, went out and picked up the woman I was dating at the time, Tanya, and we went to early does, church. Does, does your current wife know about this, this yes, lady? That's, that's Tanya. Oh, okay. All She's right. fixing coffee behind me as we speak. All right. All right. I just want to make uh, sure there was, I didn't, wasn't causing any issues. <laughs> She's laughing at you. Anyway, we, uh, this is 1974 still 74. And in 74, we went to early church because you get out of church early, right? Get it over with. <laughs> and uh, that's one way to look at it. Wow. George Dotson was preaching on Paul's thorn in the flesh. And it was aimed at me. You know, he was, you know how preachers sometimes can get very personal. So my name's Paul. And he was talking about Paul's thorn in the flesh. And, uh, and, and I, I was strongly emotionally impacted by it. Mm -hmm. We got up to sing the closing hymn. Mm -hmm. And for those that may be listening, Baptists are, are prone to sing just as I am without one plea. And you sing it over and over again until someone finally comes forward to the altar in response. Mm -hmm. And we stood up and I had not heard it announced, but they started singing, must Jesus bear the cross alone and all the world will free. Same verse I closed on at two o'clock in the morning. And I was white knuckling the pew in front of me and audibly in my spirit, I heard Paul yield now or I'll forever leave you alone. And with great emotion, I went forward and uh, tears and snot and brother George Dotson uh, took me by the hand and I could hardly say anything. I said, I yield. We had little white cards that you filled out. And you had these places you could check off at the bottom, salvation, member of the church, baptism, you know, various things. Mm -hmm. But I didn't see yield on there. So I just wrote it in big letters across the face of the card. I yielded. They knew me as a professor in town. Um, the preacher for the Baptist hour that I had produced those programs some year before had preached in that church. Mm -hmm. So this was kind of a big deal. Kind of some of the questions you're asking me earlier. Um, what are you doing? Well, this is salvation. It's, it's yielding. And I, I really grew to know in the next few months that that was yielding my life to God, whatever he had in mind. I'm still, I, I mean, this is all great and interesting. I, I am huge, huge life event you're describing here. Yes, it is. And I, and I, and my mind is stuck on, you went to bed at 2 AM and went at, went to the early service. <laughs> Cause mm -hmm. the first time you, you said you went to the early services, I was like, well, I know what your Saturday nights are like, but yeah. no, I mean, did you stay up late on Saturday nights? Typically when I did. And, but you, so did you just not need a lot of sleep? Oh, wow. Those years working in broadcasting, doing productions, going to school, teaching, even at Stephen F. Austin, I was not only uh, teaching full-time and developing a program, had a very active schedule, had three labs connected with the four courses I was teaching, running the radio station and all. 
Yeah, sleep was minor. In fact, I'm trying to think. So you were sleep deprived. This drips during this time. I was anchoring the news at a local TV station about twenty miles away. So you were sleep deprived. Would you say that? That's a fair description yeah, of those years. When you're young, you you just you just you just go for life. Now at my age, you got to have a nap. Well, some young people sleep a lot. They like they, they they like to sleep. They sleep in. Yeah, but I was goal- uh, they they stay up late. But you typically kids stay up. I was goal oriented, so I had I had stuff to do and things to do and okay. in bed. Gotcha. So you would you say you were an early riser every day? It depended on on the circumstances. I've done all night radio shows in Dallas. Mm-hmm. Uh, where this broadcast, we're, we're doing this from Albuquerque. I was here back in the uh, 60s and uh, had a morning radio show that we signed on at 4.53.30 in the morning. So, yeah, that's rough. Yeah, you just, that's you, really you rough. Adjust. You adjust. Now, what would you say to a, an atheist listening to this? who says, eh, that little experience that you had in that Baptist church, that was just sleep deprivation. Okay. The reality of the years since then changed life, changed perspective. Mm -hmm. I like to use this example, Luke, that you look at a, a lens on a camera. I worked with a fellow at SMU when we were doing the student recruitment film there. And we rented equipment from a, a, in fact, they loaned it to us. I asked him one time, I said, why do you loan this expensive equipment to college students? They said, when they graduate, they're going to need equipment sometime and they have a contact with us. And this guy said he could take apart and put together any camera, any of the equipment, except a lens. And those unique lens systems that now we're able to put in this little tiny device here. Uh, It's marvelous, the focus and the depth of field and all. And we do that with these things. And this just happened. I asked college students when I was teaching with it in in Abilene, I said, have you ever seen a, a lake bed that dries up or a stock pond? And when I moved there, we had, it was at the end of a seven-year drought. Yeah. I said, what happened to the fish? They die. I said, you mean you've never seen a fish grow legs as that pond was driving and start walking on land? No. I mean, even over a period of time? No. To me, evolutionary concepts and, and that there is no God and God is dead, there's, there's such a marvelous creation that we're a part of the eye, the ear, the, the body, that this thing has been created, the, the ability of you and I to communicate, the ability of somebody to create a device that, that here, me talking into a MacBook Pro and you sitting there in front of the Golden Gate Bridge, it's just, um, Hold up here. I, this did not just happen. And that morning when I was 36 year old, uh, I, I met the creator and, and, in when this vast universe that he takes a personal interest to address me by name, Paul, yield now. And that wasn't the first, that was the first of many occasions of having a conversation with him. 
What do you feel like you were not yielding to before that? Yielding my life, the totality of who I was. Uh, Jesus says, I've come that you might have life mm -hmm. and you might have it more abundantly. I could say I, I've lived a good life, an exciting life. Um, to, to, to meet someone like you because of someone like Lance Wallnow that I met because of Graham Cook, that, that we met because God told us to sell everything and move to a place he would show us, and we moved to Alaska. So I had to meet you by leaving Dallas, Texas, and moving to Alaska to meet Graham, to meet Lance, yeah. to recommend you. And the wonderful connections that he does, this life more abundantly. For Lance to tell me, as I've told you a number of times, write the book, write the book, write the book that God has given you. And that was 25 years ago. I've said 20 for a number of years, but I realized 25 years to finally write these three books. Trying to show the, months. Yeah, show, the, show the book. Here, here you go. Yeah. It, it's, uh, it's in three parts. Climbing Mount Everest to accomplish your spiritual goals. I think it's an unusual format, Luke. It's, uh, it's got Mount Everest as the focus, but the jumping off part, part is that each one of the books has a memoir of my life. And then I accomplish your spiritual goals as a part of it. Part one being base camp is salvation, baptism, and communion. And then we go on from there. Can you describe salvation for us? You say, the, sorry, the acknowledgement says, my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for me. Can you explain that to someone who doesn't know what that means? Well, the Bible starts in Genesis with creation in the garden of Adam and Eve and they didn't murder they didn't steal they questioned God and what we've done ever since is question God and Jesus gave us an answer he God incarnate indescribable inexplicable you've had guests on here before and will in the future that can describe it I'm a simple man simple approach to the scripture but he said i come that you might have life how did he do that because we were born into death separated from god separated from our creator and the only way we could be joined to him be a member of this family is by a blood birth john does such a wonderful job of describing that in in the first chapters of john when jesus says you must be born again Nicodemus says, how can this be? Because what he had done in the Jewish world is the ultimate birth. He had been born into the Sanhedrin. Not only had he had this bar mitzvah become a man, married, business, but born into the Sanhedrin. Do I have to be born again? How can this be? And Jesus said, unless you're born of the spirit. And the spirit of the man is what lives on. What what I have here and what you're looking at and what I'm looking at at you is like this computer. It's, it's the hardware. What drives this computer? It's the software. So within us, 
we have this soul, or Watchman Nee calls that the mind, the will, the emotions, the intangibles. Well, what's my power source? So I, I, got, I got hardware, I got software, but what's my power source? You can be plugged into that which is evil, or you can be plugged into that which is the power of God. And the Holy Spirit is the power of God. And once we plug into that, then we have access to... To, to the creator of the universe, and he calls us family. And, and John says, you have the power to become sons of God. Well, for the women in our audience, what, what that means is not only do you, are you born into the family, but you're born into Christ himself, and Christ comes to live within us. And what the father sees is his son, and that's why he calls us sons of God. But we are called joint heirs with Jesus Christ. What? Because of what he purchased for us on the cross. We're told in Isaiah that by his stripes, we're healed. Prophetically, then we see Christ in Mel Gibson's film, The Passion of the Christ, being beat, beaten to a point that in a men's meeting recently when we were seeing that scene, one of the men objected, a pastor. He said, why are we looking at this violence? Well, we're looking at the violence because because of that, what Jesus experienced on the cross, we have the opportunity to accept that and be born again. And it's that yielding. It's that yielding to him. Not my will, but your will be done. So that, that Sunday morning, go back to that Sunday morning, yeah. when you went forward. Yeah. You knew all of that, that you just said, but there was something in your spirit that was suddenly responsive yep. to, to that in a new way, in a personal way yep. that had never been, you'd never experienced that before. Is that right? That's true. Okay. Standing and, at the door. Jesus knocks, that famous picture, it says in Revelation, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man opened the door, in that famous picture, he's standing at a door, and there's no doorknob. Mm. We have the doorknob. We can open that door yep. and let him in. Gotcha. And so there was, there was two things that happened that day. He came into my life, but I also stepped over into his world as well. Was there a Kleenex there so you could take care of the snot and stuff? Just, I think there's someone wondering that. That I think I reached into my back pocket of that um, uh, suit that I had on that day and took out that handkerchief. And just <laughs> it up That's back when people had handkerchiefs. Yeah. You're dating yourself, Paul. I know. You're dating yourself. Hey, um, 83 years old this year. 83? 83 now, 84 in May seems like just last year you were 82 i know <laughs> it goes by quickly um you've had a long career yeah. so now you're you're at stephen f austin what happened after that where'd you go after that okay uh two things happened there one right after <laughs> Anya and i got married congratulations we lived in an old farmhouse out on the edge of town that's cool um, Did you have a barn? 
No, but we had uh, two picnic tables covered by a wisteria vine that was about 100 years old. Wow. Curving driveway around the house. Oh, that's cool. Big front porch. Two Ooh. fireplaces. Now, oh, now you're it talking. Was nice. It was nice. Now it, you're talking. Now, let me ask you this. On this conversation with you this morning, have we talked about the pruning, the plowing, and the transplanting? You're getting to that. That's what you're getting to. All right. Okay. So, yeah. So, you had Living to Living on an old farmhouse. Mm -hmm. It's uh, yeah. early in the morning. <laughs> it's dark. I'm driving someplace. It's not to the university. I'm thinking it may have been to Austin on university business. I don't remember. Driving along, it's dark. It's the piney woods of East Texas. And I hear God audibly in my spirit. I can't explain how that happens or what it sounds like, but I hear his voice. And he says, if you're truly a tree planted in my garden, do I have permission to prune you? And I said, yes. We'd had a couple of conversations earlier in the previous years. And I said, yes. But then I got this shh, kind of like you're speaking too quickly. And he showed me that, and this is in John 15, where it says, that the, the Lord is the true vine and we're the branches. And in order to be fruitful, fruitful, the gardener wants to sometimes prune back that plant. And where you live in California, I'm sure you've seen vineyards where after the growing season, they, they radically prune them, they cut them back so they can be more fruitful. And he showed me that, that to the plant, that limb is alive, it's fruitful, it's bearing fruit, it's got sap running through it, and he wants to cut it off. And it can hurt in our real lives. And I told him, yes. Long pause. And he said, if you're truly a tree planted in my garden, do I have permission to plow the ground where you live? Well, this was a lovely old farmhouse out in the country, fruit trees around it the wisteria vine over the picnic tables in the back, a place where you can go out and have a picnic. But he shows me when you start plowing the ground and pulling up the weeds and taking the claws of dirt and pulverizing it and taking rocks and throwing it away and just having good, clean, healthy dirt for the plant to grow in, you don't want to have a picnic out there anymore. It's just dirt. And I gave him permission to plow the ground where we lived. Long pause. And then he comes back and he says, if you're truly a tree planted in my garden, can I move you wherever I want? Can I transplant you? And he showed me that the tree, a plant being transplanted, can uh, be killed by a gardener that doesn't know what they're doing. The, the tree being transplanted and the root structure being balled up, it can lose all of its leaves. Yeah. And he showed me that and I gave him permission to move us wherever we want. We moved shortly after that while I'm finishing my doctoral dissertation for my degree at North Texas to an air-conditioned uh, home uh, owned by a builder. And it was a display home, finished the doctorate. And then we moved and it got tenure uh, at the university. And we moved to my wife's childhood dream home, a place she had seen since she was a very young, young child. And it was a large place, beautiful wraparound porch, three fireplaces, beautiful place. You're, you're saying that she had seen this home with her All eyes. years growing up. Yep. So she'd always looked at that house and said, I want to live there. Yep. 
Okay. I just was trying to distinguish that that from like some kind of dream house that she came up with in her dreams or something. Okay. So it was real house. People, uh, people she drove by Nacogdoches. And I think some of them are going to watch, be watching this. Uh, it was, it's, it's listed in uh, uh, one of those historic homes built cool. by a famous builder, all of that. And we had the opportunity to live in it for a year. That's cool. Then, wow. Why would you leave tenure? Why would you leave your wife's childhood dream home? Why would you leave family, your church, all of that? It's, it's hard to explain, but we did. We moved to Cincinnati, Ohio to develop the program, television program for Xavier University. Uh, it was to be the chair position in a year, but I was not to tell Father Flynn. Were, were you unhappy at Stephen F. Austin? No, we really weren't. Okay. No, well, no personnel issues that were a problem. Personnel. No, no colleagues that were giving you a hard time. Nope. It, it students were student. okay. What was okay? The students were okay. Oh yeah. Got okay. some of them that were some of them I'm still in contact with. Some of them have been very successfully on the international scene and national scene. And one of them even had lunch with over the Christmas holidays recently. Was the were the summers too hot? Hot and humid. Okay. When we so talk about I'm moving back to, to Texas, I think of Ohio. I've never been to Ohio. So I don't really know. I my guess is there's four seasons there. The the winters are cold. Yep. And the summers can get pretty hot, I yep. think. I'm pretty sure. So, okay. So you're saying this was a spiritual move. Yep. That you can't explain. Can't explain. Okay. You just had a certainty that you were supposed to move to Ohio. Yep. Um, I, I use the term knocking on the door, which is another term for sending out applications. I knocked on the door. You wait, hold on. You were sending out applications. Mm -hmm. Does it, is, don't you think that that's a sign that you were unhappy at Stephen F. Austin? Discontent, different word. Discontent. Okay. Tell me the, tell me um, the difference between those two things. Unhappy would be, you know, there's circumstances that you weren't happy with. Discontent yeah, okay. was you were always looking for something new. What's over uh, the horizon. What's what's around the mountain? I guess I use yes. the term. I've used the term in my career, a gypsy scholar, a scholar that uh, gets in my wagon and always want to hook up the horse and see what's next. Um, a pioneer. I was good at developing programs in radio, TV, film. So much so that while I was at Xavier of Ohio, uh, I got contacted to be representative for the colleges and universities that were negotiating with the cable companies that were applying for access to a Cincinnati and the surrounding communities. Uh, being on that cable consortium committee, I got offered a job and I found out later it's called Rent uh, an Academic. So uh, Warner Communications hired me to be their executive producer to start up the cable division in Cincinnati, Ohio. So I wore two hats, teaching at Xavier and also executive producer for Warner Communication. So would it be fair to say that moving to Ohio 
was mainly for a private position and incidentally to teach or were you, what were you excited about moving? Was it to teach or was it to be working for Warner or was it to be? The teaching came teaching. first okay. and it was to develop two things. It would have been uh, an administrative position being chair of the department. And that that's exciting to you? It was at the time, a challenge. Okay. I wanted to be in charge instead of being dictated to, I wanted to manage the uh, position. Gotcha. Um, it was a Jesuit school. Was it more money? Not much, not much. And I'm trying to think of, it would be more, it would be uh, the cost of living is more expensive in Cincinnati. Actually, no, because really? it, it was becoming the rust belt. Oh. One out of every five homes was on the market. Oh. Um, we ended up living in, in a couple of wonderful homes. Mm. And uh, the, the mandatory retirement age for Jesuits then was 65. And our department chair was 64. So I was being hired to take his place, but don't tell him. And the dean who hired me said, that position is yours next year. But the Jesuits changed retirement age to 70. The dean accepted a position somewhere in California. And so my, my promise of a promotion was gone. Uh, I had accepted the job wearing two hats with Warner Communication. And uh, my senior vice president overspent his budget. They'd never had an executive producer in their cable division. And so New York uh, cut the position over the Christmas holidays. And um, so I was no longer going to be chair of the department. I was no longer going to be working for Warner. And I started knocking on doors. And that's when the opening came at the University of Oklahoma. Hey, hold on. How, how long were you in Ohio? <laughs> Three years. Okay. All right. So six, this could fit in the story if we go long enough. Six years at Stephen F. Austin, three years at Xavier. I moved to University of Oklahoma, get called in the process of um, moving there by the new uh, director of the School of Journalism, asked to be her assistant. So I came in as assistant director of the School of Journalism. You worked for a woman? Yeah. Well, she's one of the best bosses I ever had. She at was the time? Yeah. Yeah, she was awesome. Did, now, wait, hold on. So yeah. you're saying you worked for a woman and you didn't feel angry about it back then? Absolutely not. When, when you have a good boss, it doesn't matter what, what their gender is. Mind blown. She was a For all good, these great inflated kids out there. Okay. Good boss. Just, cur I'm just curious. That was in the 80s. Accent and she calls Paul, would you Who, be my assistant? Who was the president at the time? Reagan? No, president Pardon? of the U.S. or president of the university. Uh, good golly, I forget, I forget his name. He's this would have been the 80s, right? This is the guy that uh, moved. Help us with the timeline here. What? Pepperdine. He, he moved Pepperdine out to the coast. Banowski? Banowski. Yeah. yeah, he was president. Well, he he, just, he died recently. He left on the day he arrived, had his jacket over his shoulder. We were walking across campus. And I said, why did you leave the day I arrived? 
He says, I don't know. I just got an offer from California. So he had left Pepperdine and gone to the University of Oklahoma. So you knew Bill Banowski? Yeah, about that long. <laughs> and then after he accepted the presidency of the Los Angeles Chamber of Commerce, that's why he was leaving, he applied to fill his old position at the University of Oklahoma and he came back. Okay, go back to what year this was, though. This is what, what year was that? Was this the 80s? You're, you're good on dates. I'm not. This would have been 80s. Yeah. Okay. So now, 80s, how long 80s. were you at Oklahoma? <laughs> okay. Let me guess. Three years. Nope. Six years. Nope. Okay. Uh, I developed, I, I took their television operation. Okay. I came with a professional background in radio TV film. The local cable people, which I had an experience with now, had been wanting the university to do programming on their cable for a number of years and they couldn't get it together. So what I did is got cable university and brought them together. And the second semester, we went on the air live every weekday morning at 7 a.m. with the newscast. Bill pulled the switch that we fabricated and made a big deal out of it. Well, hold on one sec. I got to stop you there. Okay. <laughs> there are some people that are waiting for the number of years that you were there and they're not able to take in this information. Okay. So two years. Gotcha. And so did you have a woman boss the whole time? Yes. Okay. And, and you were not bitter and angry. No, no, no. Okay. And I ran the radio station, a television operation. And uh, a school in Southern Missouri. I'd have to go back and check notes on this. Wanted to develop a multi-county, two-way interactive educational system, which I have some notes here. It'd be fun to get into at some point in time with you. What um, Peter Drucker was supposing that the educational system would eventually be transmitting content differently. Not building bricks and mortars, but using satellites and delivery systems in a different way. That's what that school wanted to do up in Missouri. So I drove up, by the time I left, the president had offered me more money, full professorship, which I did not have at the time, I was an associate, full professorship to develop their television operation. And he had asked me, he says, how long will it take to do this? I said, you already have the basics to have it fully functional. It would take about a year. And there would be some things we would need to tweak, but in a year we could be up and running. As I'm driving back to Norman, Oklahoma, University of Oklahoma, I'm thinking I spent six years at Stephen F. Austin. I spent three years at Xavier. I've just spent two years at the University of Oklahoma. And I told him I could do that in a year. My prayer became, dear Lord, what do you want me to do? What's next? Because six, three, two, one, what's next? I ended up quitting university life totally. And I went into the insurance and investment business for six years. Became a vice president of insurance, hired about 200 people, trained them in insurance sales. And that was the next phase of my life. Okay. 
what you were getting promoted this whole time yep. in ac academics, right? It's not that yep. you were going sideways. You were going up. Yep. And then you got a full professor for one year. Is that right? In Missouri? Offered. Offered. Okay. You didn't take it. Did not take it. Okay. I gotcha. So from Oklahoma and, and the University of Oklahoma is in what state is that in? Oklahoma. Okay. It's so just north of Texas. So it's in, uh, it's in Oklahoma. Yep. And you were there for total of three years, three years university. and all, and you all of a sudden wanted to work in insurance all of a sudden. It's an answer to prayer. You know, God, what's next. Did you just want more money or what, what was it? it, it it's again, discontent. It's hard to explain. Um, well, can I, can I, uh, can I ask you my discontent? Uh, anyway, the winner of our discontent was yeah. written by John Steinbeck. Yes. So it was, it was, it was discontent. Mm -hmm. I can't explain it. I've had people that have stayed in one job all their life, mm -hmm. one home retired from a position. Some people are like that. Yeah. I mean, they're, I've noticed that with my friends that grew up in a military family, they move more. And I guess, it's and I grew up, I grew up in a, you know, I grew up in the same house for 18, well, not 18 years, but I went K through 12 in the same house hmm. and 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 so i know what it's like to have roots in the same neighborhood and and you know have these memories and and i, I i'm i'm not uh, I, I just i just think it's an interesting aspect i wonder how much of the military uh background that you had because your dad retired from the military is that right no, he, he left. He was a chief petty officer. And uh, was he was he in the military when you graduated high school? No. OK, he, he got out shortly after World War Two. Oh, OK, but you moved around a lot, did you say? Because you said you were a we Navy did. brat for a while. We did. OK, uh, California, uh, Brooklyn Naval Yard, Miami. His plane, Maybe. his his ship had been hit by a Japanese suicide plane in the Pacific and uh we went back to Oregon. So it was all four corners of the United States. Well, there, and there are people that, that just seem to have discontent. Yeah. Like they, they, they will, I've got, and it's not necessarily military. It's, it's just like, um, I've got friends that had <laughs> a really nice spread in, in the, in the Rocky mountains and they just upped and moved to the East coast hmm. and, um, it's, you know, it would have been a nice place for them to grow uh, for their kids to grow up, but they, uh, had, they left <laughs> and, and it's because I think it's because the, the man, the guy, my friend is, is, has discontent. He wants something new. That's what he wants. Uh, and I'm, I, and so it's interesting, um, what causes the discontent? Pioneer, pioneering spirit. Yeah, that's right. That's true. 
the pioneers were definitely like that. They had to be. How could you not be that way? See, see I was in the early, early years of broadcasting when, mm -hmm. when the transition was made to disc jockeys. Oh. Um, wow. Early, early experience in television, anchoring. Yes. That sort of There's thing. a lot of changes going on in those years. Wow. Sure. And it was interesting, the period of time from, from leaving University of Oklahoma, mm -hmm. which I was real good in analog technology. Mm -hmm. uh, editing and all that editing was my forte but then when we went in in the insurance business then we ended up going through a series of events to alaska for four years that was the transition from analog to digital i miss that uh gotcha i am not that good at the digital technology okay I understand the concepts of producing and directing Yes. But the actual technical aspects of it. And that was good because we had, um, in the professional world anyway, the engineers that could do that. Mm -hmm. I had an engineer license, but I had not kept current with the transitions. Now, you become a vice president of insurance, and then you go back into teaching, right? We I had people working for me in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. I was working out of Oklahoma City when I started mm -hmm. and working directly with the national sales director, who was my mentor. And one of the things I was good at in the insurance business is teaching the fast start schools, doing the recruiting, uh, teaching goal setting. Uh, I, I guess I've been a goal setter ever since I was a Boy Scout as a teenager, because you to achieve the ranks in scouting, to achieve the merit badges, you have to set goals and achieve them. And I've always been good at goal setting, good at helping kids uh, in, in setting up their degree plans in colleges and universities, asking the questions, okay, and you and I've had this conversation for a number of years. Uh, you know, about goal setting, about writing the book, about, you know, achieving certain goals and things in your life. Or, or leading up to write the book that God gave you. Exactly. But, but what, what happened is I moved to Dallas and, and there's a very, Tanya was on a trip to Georgia, came back on the tour bus. She was with some of the partners in our business. I had heard in my spirit about the night or two before she got back, it's time to move to Texas. She got off of the tour bus. And one of the first, I said, how was the trip? She says, we've been talking about us moving to Texas. And we had some people working in the business in Texas. We had some very, very good friends from when we had first got married, living in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. We went down and visited them, visited their church, visited them, and through a series of events, we moved to Dallas-Fort Worth. Lucas, I don't know how to explain this to your audience, except all of a sudden, everything I was good at, setting goals, recruiting, developing a market, I couldn't do anything. Absolutely dead in the water. If I'd have been a sailing craft, I'd have been in dead waters, nothing. And I remember Tanya going out of town, visit family, me standing at one of those old remotes that you had on TV that you would go across and, and choose a channel. And I'm just diddling with it. Now, dear God, what are you doing? 
And he said, do I have your attention? And it, it was like, yes, sir, but nothing except this void. And I'm walking across the church parking lot where we're going a couple of days later. And I can take you just about to that spot, even though that church has closed its doors now. I can take you to the spot where this is years later from the pruning, the plowing, and the transplanting. He said, and, I mean, why start with and? But I heard in my spirit so strong, and the pruning is seasonal. At that time, I wasn't making any money. And I had some residuals and insurance, but wasn't making any money because I wasn't out selling. I went to work as a telemarketer. I made a discovery. You can't go in and get a job as a telemarketer being a former professor, being a PhD. You just tell them you're a teacher looking for extra money. Oh, teachers are always looking for extra money. So I telemarketed for a year. I think I, I, I think I missed something. Okay. So I'm tracking with you. You were vice president insurance. Yeah. Next thing you know, you're telemarketing. Yep. I missed that guy. I, I missed that. I, I don't understand. We moved to Dallas Fort Worth. I was opening up a branch of the company. Okay. I couldn't do anything. I just were you still happened. vice president at the time? Yeah, and I had some residual income. I just started to hit that power curve of income. Maybe I don't understand what it means to be a vice president. That's not a salary position? No, it was not. Oh, was, that's that's the piece I was missing. That's, that's what I was missing. Okay. Commissions Sorry. and overrides. Ah, all right. Okay. I, I, didn't, I, I was missing that. Okay. Vice okay. president sounds like it's a salary position to me. It does sound good, doesn't it? Well, it sounds like a salary position. It does. It does. To me. I, I mean, I, these kind of words, I, they don't really mean much to me, but I'm, I'm interested in what's going on in your spirit. And did you feel like God was growing you this whole time, your whole career? And if so, what were those growth points? What were you, in, how were you in growing? In Ecclesiastes, it talks about the seasons. I think this was a season a season of pruning, a season of reevaluation, of redirection, and being... What, what's getting pruned, though? Because when, when the pruning happens, something gets cut, and then something else grows. Yeah. So that's what I'm asking about. What, what was getting cut was the pursuit of the income, the pursuit of building a business and insurance and investment strategies. Um, what was being reestablished is a spiritual growth that as I knocked on doors, I got a one-year temporary appointment, 90 miles from home. So driving there in the mornings, teaching, coming back, stopping off at a community college, Tarrant County Community College, teaching there at night. and trying to find out what, what God's doing. So I was spending my days driving, teaching, coming back, teaching, long days. And at the, at the end of that year, it was a one-year appointment, temporary appointment. Tanya ended up working full-time at her church. I was looking around for something more than that one-year appointment. And I got a 
full professorship, chair of the department at Angelo State University, which was a five hour drive from home. Now, now being chair, is, is that still like impressive to you at this point? <laughs> or because it just seems like more work to me. I don't know why anybody would want to be chair. You, you get reduction in course time. You get to choose your schedule. You get to schedule yourself working summers. So you got a full-time job, more income. Um, you have control over your life. You're not under the thumb of a, a chairperson. And uh, did you like driving? Is that why you took that job? Did you take that job? I took the job. I asked five God, hours. That's world, 10 hours. Why in the world would he give me a job that was five hours away from home? Was it and so I it's five it, hours one way? One way. I got an apartment. I was home on weekends. I asked God why I was going to be away from Tanya four and a half days a week, okay. driving five miles, uh, five hours, mm -hmm. having an apartment, good money, good position. And well, if I you were really able felt, to afford two places of residence, it must have been. It was, we moved out of the telemarketing income, let's say that. And uh, and I said, Lord, why? It's why a state university. This? Huh? It's a state university. I've been there. I've been in the you library. Been I've, I've, oh, yeah. I've swam in that pool. I did a sure. lot of training in that pool there, Angelo State. It's a ni nice, nice little school. Yeah, it is a nice school. I, I in fact, I still have a library book accidentally that I, I have I, second largest office on campus. Nice office, TV right. set up in the corner. Was that, was, that was that impressive to you at the time? I think it was impressive to faculty and students. Mm -hmm. And that was important to you to have that. Appearance has always been a part, I think, of, mm -hmm. of my life. Yeah. Did you miss Tanya? During the week? We spent a lot of time on the phone. Mm. And after the first year, we took a vacation to Alaska to visit her sister. Mm -hmm. And the second year I was there, we spent a lot of time talking about moving to Alaska. And I said, you'd move there in a moment, wouldn't you? And she said, yes. I said, why? She said, I got an awful lot of my daddy in me. Her dad had always been attracted to Alaska, but never went. Well, it ended up that her sister, Tonya's sister, moved to Alaska. And we visited them. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, but go back. You're in San Angelo. Yep. Working. Yeah. You have an apartment. Is it a one bedroom apartment? Say again. Was it a one bedroom apartment? Yep. And how far away from campus was that apartment? Five minutes. Okay. Could you walk? Walk. It usually ran. Oh, well, wow. okay. That's and I was younger and more energetic. What time would you get up and what time would you go to bed? I'd be there at seven in the morning. I was at always, work. I was always the first one in the office. And uh, wow. I did have some night classes. So sometimes I was there till late at night. Sound, you sound like a morning person. Not anymore. <laughs> okay. So where did you go to church during this time? It was back in the weekends, back to uh, the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Okay. And this was uh, a non-denominational church. Mm -hmm. uh, had a lot of well-known people that came in and out of that church. My wife worked in a ministry school there. Big church? People like, huh? Say again. Big church? About 1,500. That's big. That's a mega church. Yeah. Uh, 
James Robinson went there. Uh, Jack Deere was connected with him. What do you feel like God was doing in your spirit during when this first, time? And how were you to, growing as a person? When I first went to San Angelo, I said, Lord, Lord, why did you set up these circumstances? thing that came to me was, I need to talk to you. I want to talk to you. And it took me, Luke, about six months to quieten down inside. Uh, Dudley Hall, a teacher, Bible teacher, used to use the term sitting down inside. We, we have what, I, you, you've done work in the Asian world. I think they have a concept there called the drunken monkey that never shuts up. I call it the radio voice in our mind. You know, when you're trying to quieten down, you want to spend some time with God or Bible study or prayer or something. You got these thoughts that just all of a sudden flare up and your mind's busy, busy, busy. You, you try to concentrate on something and there take a flight. And it took me about six months to quieten down inside, turn off the car radio, mm-hmm. uh, turn off the television and the, the electronic stuff at the house, and just quieten down and listen to God. Out of that, we started talking more about Alaska and I left the university uh, after we went, we, we hung out at a revival for six weeks one summer. And during that time, we both heard, sell what you have, move to a place that I'll show you. I'll tell you to move to the right or to the left when you get to the fork in the road. And I'll tell you when you get to the gates of the city. When when you say you hung out at a revival, did, were you going home at night? This was during a summer. So you stayed the night we, there at the revival? No, 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 no. Right. It was morning sessions. Oh, okay. Sessions. So you're living at home, but you're not. Okay. So a lot of people, they don't know what a revival is. They don't know what that is. Is this like some this, kind of Coachella? This, this was, this wasn't your, this wasn't your usual uh, show up, have some songs, have a sermon, go home. It was an extended time of really getting into God's presence and uh, hearing what he had to say. Uh, Can I I notice a pattern here? It seems to me that the pattern is that God tells you where to move. Mm -hmm. But I'm trying to get at the deeper issue there of what is going on that requires a move? Why does God want you to move? There's something going on in the background there. When, in when in the depth came, of your heart, there's some ache or desire, something that God is asking you to move. But there, it's got to be more than just moving. Right? It's, it's, it's pursuit discontent yields to pursuing satisfying becoming content there's an old song this world is not my home i'm just a passing through dear lord what shall i do yeah that's kind of been the echo in my heart for a number of years and when we tend to um grow still we get discontent, we tend to stagnate. And uh, there's a number of references in the New Testament to stirring the waters, 
I think that's what God does. All of a sudden here, I, you know, you become content. You put down roots. The water grows still. It starts growing green scum on the top of it. And it needs to be stirred up. And for me, he's always broke up, broken up the end of that pond and get the water moving someplace. And gotcha. for, for us, it blessed Tanya's heart. She has followed me all over the place. Mm-hmm. And we sold everything. And, uh, and, and we moved not knowing where we would end up in Alaska, but we ended up moving to Fairbanks, Alaska for four years. Got there and uh, didn't know what we'd be doing, where we'd be staying. We house sat for t- 10 months uh, at different places. You do not want to leave your house in Alaska and people would leave, go outside, go to the vacation, whatever. And they didn't want to leave their house unoccupied. So we would house sit sometimes a week, two weeks. The most was five weeks. We did that for 10 months. So we got free room, utilities. Some of them said the pantry's yours, eat whatever you want. And uh, I ran a church camp for the Presbyterians, church camp and retreat center for two years. Tanya had had some connections with the church up there that we established ourselves in. The second year, end of the second year, the church merged with another church and the pastor, she became the executive pastors or the senior pastors, the executive secretary. And the pastor asked me to be the executive pastor uh, doing the administration of the church. Mm-hmm. And so we did that for a couple of years. This was the period of time. I think it's very important spiritually in our life. It's when we uh, met Graham Cook that I've mentioned. We've mentioned somebody that's been a, a connection in your life, Lance Wallnow, uh, Kim Clement had a prophecy over our life because of Lance. Wait, what was Lance doing up in Alaska? Uh, we met him through Graham. We met in Alaska, but we actually met Lance over in Tennessee and uh, Georgia at some of uh, some group conferences. Okay. Uh, he had just become pastor of a church up in Rhode Island. And uh, still working with his Fortune 500 companies. Did not, now, he did not have the prominence that he has now because of the last four or five years. Okay, go back to Alaska. <laughs> so uh, I see where this is going. Okay. You're going to get disconnect, discontented in Alaska. Is that right? It was, it was because of the church. Um, okay. I'm a developer. The camp that I had, I saw as being a great attraction for people from the lower 48. Mm-hmm. We had a senior board member who only saw it being just for Fairbanks and the mm-hmm. churches there. Mm-hmm. He didn't want a big camp operation with people coming in from the lower 48. What was it like living in Alaska? Four very distinct seasons. June, July, August, and winter. <laughs> it's, it's like you mentioned earlier. The Did heat you like that? We both enjoyed it, but it was, it was time to move. Really? You enjoyed the huge winter? Mm-hmm. What did you like about it? Well, you learned to dress in layers. Yeah. You, you, we, uh, we bought a home that had a heated garage, so you could go out and get in your car and, and uh, put her around. Mm-hmm. It was unusual. It was different. I mean, 35 mm-hmm. degrees below zero isn't uh, 
this morning I got up here, it's 28 degrees. It's a little bit different when it's 50 degrees colder. Were you into the outdoors? Did you like hunting? Did you go fishing? <clears throat> we had, we've we already had, established you're not an Indian. We, yeah. And we had friends back in Texas. They were hunters and fishermen. Yeah. That's why people like Alaska. Why God, yeah. why God would move us to Alaska. And I wasn't a hunter or a fisherman. So what do you think? Why do you think he did move you to Alaska? I think it was for some of the connections that we've had in the, you and I would not be here today if we hadn't moved to Alaska. Unless God had arranged it some other way. Yeah. Well, okay. So you grew discontent with Alaska. What was the next move? I, I think it was a God thing. Our church moved from being a prophetic emphasis to being a life group, home group emphasis. And when we moved into this life group emphasis, they were going to decentralize the church. And through a number of things that happened, it ended up that pastor and I were going a different way. And uh, so we said, okay, God, what's next? And it was to move back to Texas. But it took a three-year journey to get back to Texas and to get to Hardin-Simmons University, where I ended up teaching. It was a three-year journey because you were walking? Because there, you know, where, where do you where do you move? What do you do? What's what's the goal? Uh, what's the job? So, and, uh, so you moved before having something in place. Yeah. Okay. You must have really wanted to get out of Alaska. Even applied for jobs in Alaska, but no one wanted me. Okay. Was that tough? Was how did you feel about that? Did you feel? We surfed credit cards and got deeper and deeper in debt. How did you feel about that? It's the great big question mark when, when God has you in the wilderness. And I think that was the early stages of our wilderness experience. Uh, not how, how long was that? Three years? Wilderness? It was 20 years. Okay, so you're including Hardin Simmons in the wilderness As years. Part of the wilderness. All right. Okay. All right. So that three years, where did you live? We uh, we sold our home very quickly, and most of the furniture in it. We moved in with my wife's uh, family in Palmer Wasilla, Alaska, and uh, I kept applying for jobs you know, nationwide in Alaska. And then finally we loaded up our five by eight foot trailer and uh, headed back off to uh, Texas. And, um, and can we pause for just a minute or two? Sure. I was going to ask you if you knew Sarah Palin, this is probably where you're going to tell me about Sarah Palin. Now, you were in Alaska. You hadn't left yet. You were, you, well, you mentioned you were in for three years living on credit cards after leaving Alaska, but you wanted yeah. to say more about Alaska. Yeah. A couple of things happened there. We really had some strong connections with ministries that were coming in and out of Alaska. And some of them we had known from our time in Texas and Tanya's relationship in the church there. Some of them we were introduced to in Alaska. One is a gentleman by the name of Graham Cook, who at the time was out of England. And he had some conferences, not only in Alaska with us, but in the lower 48. 
So we were on staff at our church and we'd go on those conferences, some to Tennessee, some in Georgia. And it was at a meeting in Tennessee where a young man by the name of Lance Walnow came in one night and it had been a storm. He came in late, had a backpack, came in, didn't sit at the table where we were in a conference room, just kind of crashed against the wall. And we were introduced to this. Was, was this uh, during the time you lived in Alaska? We were in Alaska. We were on a conference in, in Tennessee. Okay. And um, this was our first introduction to Lance Walnow, a fairly new pastor out of Rhode Island, but had an extensive history working with Fortune 500 companies. And I have counted him since then as one of the top two teachers uh, in two or three teachers that I've had in things spiritual of Christian nature. Lance, two things happened. One, in a subsequent meeting in Virginia Beach, Virginia, that he was there, and I was for a conference on home cell group ministry. He introduced me to a guy by the name of Kim Clement, who's passed away now. Kim was a prophetic voice out of South Africa. Lance, at the end of a meeting one night, I'd go, already gone back to the van, going back to the hotel. And he came running out, Paul, I've done something I've never done before. And I said, what's that? He said, I asked Kim if he might have a prophetic word for you. And he does, come on. And I walked in and here's this guy with long hair. He had a long overcoat on, it's in the winter, and he's sticking his hand out at me, and he said, the brook has dried up where you are. The brook has dried up where you are. Prepare to pack your bags for Seraphath. Summer's coming, and you'll flourish again. Well, we were already starting to feel this move away from Alaska. It's kind of been part of that whole thing of discontent. But here's a word that I think and interprets from the Lord that prepare to pack our bags. Okay, point two. Guy by the did name you, of Did Dr. you trust that, him? Did you trust this Kim yes. guy? Yes, I did. Why did uh, you trust him? Lance in his introduction. I trust I had trusted Lance from the number of meetings that we had had in conferences. And uh uh, and, and it echoed my spirit. And unless someone's ever had experienced that, you can't explain it. It's just, it speaks spirit to spirit. And it's a confirmation word as well. Well, another fellow that we knew and who stayed in our home was Dr. Jack Taylor. Another fellow that's passed away since then. We had known him from our days in Texas, in and out of the ministry uh, of churches that we had been a part of. And I, I, I said, I struggled with churches. And he said, Paul, that's because you don't know the code. And I said, what code? He said, well, I'm going to write a book on it. He never did. Best I can determine is maybe you would know this because you have a degree, a master's degree in Bible. He said, you don't have a degree in Bible. You've not gone to Bible school. Yeah, you've taken religious courses, but you haven't been tapped on the shoulder, knighted, as it were. You don't have the credentials of being a pastor. 
And unless you have that, unless you've been entered into the ranks of the Sanhedrin, unless you've been recognized as one of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, he said, you just, you're not going to be accepted. He said, you got the wrong degree. A degree in communication and education isn't what the churches are looking for. And uh, he, he prayed for me, sympathized with me, and that was it. The other one was a prophetic word from Graham Cook saying that I would head up a school of ministry. And I said, okay, and saw that as being a possibility. But again, I didn't have the credentials in Bible, but I did in education. But if you've studied the stuff enough, and I'm a good teacher, taking it and breaking it down into its fundamental parts and presenting it as a curriculum. And my emphasis on my doctorate was curriculum design. So taking a concept, breaking it down and presenting it to an audience. Packaging the message, which is part of radio, TV, film. Well, it, it, it wasn't working. God, what's next? We moved in with family in the Palmer Wasilla area. I, I don't know if it was before the break or not. You asked me about Sarah Palin. My brother-in-law, who was in education there, and my sister-in-law, he was a coach and he did a lot of work with recreation when she was the mayor. So he did know Sarah Palin. I never met her. We were looking for any employment that we could, Luke. We were looking in the lower 48, looking in Texas, looking in Alaska, looking wherever, couldn't find anything. We just packed up everything and moved back to Texas, which was home for my wife, home for me. Uh, so how long were you in Wasilla again? A few months. Now, was, during this time, it sounds like this was a tumultuous time in Alaska. It was. And it, it feels to me like you're feeling held back in the church because of the degrees that you have or don't have. Yeah. And. I think I think uh, it, it feels to me that um, there was some feelings there that were painful. Yeah. And in my books, the next to the last goal, spiritual goal that I list is walking in forgiveness. And sometimes when we're offended, when we're hurt, when positions are terminated for whatever reason, um, yeah, there's hurt. And it's, it's difficult to walk in that forgiveness. And I think that's why when Peter asked the Lord, how many times should he forgive somebody? Seven. And the Lord said seven times 70. Well, that multiplication of forgiveness must be very important. Even so, the Lord puts that in the Lord's prayer. Uh, forgive our those that sin against you that trespass against you uh, so that we might be forgiven by our father in heaven it is a it's a difficult requirement for the christian walk to walk in forgiveness do you think that forgiveness requires the person that the moral injury occurred from do you think that that uh, person needs to ask for forgiveness before it's granted I think there's an essential, there's power in the word. And uh, if I've offended someone, I want to 
apologize to them. And it may be real or imagined, but I still think it needs to be done that way. I, I know recently someone in our church was saying they had, they had done something. And I says, well, good for you. I wish it would happen to me. And I actually sent them a text later. We exchanged messages. I said, I'm sorry, I didn't receive what you were telling me, something happening to you with more grace. And that grace is an interesting word. I, 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 I've researched the word grace. Frequently, when people are defining grace, they use a uh, catechism uh, answer to it. It's unmerited favor. And I thought Jesus was filled with grace. Was it unmerited? No. So what is grace? And I think that word unmerited favor started back about Spurgeon. Uh, it's best I've been able to research it. But to me, grace is God's empowerment to be everything he's called you to be and his power to do everything he's called you to do. So it's the empowerment of God to be and to do everything that he has designed you to be and to do. And part of that is walking in forgiveness because if that other person is, is stepping over boundaries, if that other person has invaded your space, you need to walk in forgiveness for them. And the other part of that is true, not only granting forgiveness, but walking in forgiveness to them. It's a two-way street. That's um, I think besides your conversion story, that might be the first time I heard you talk about God in the day-to-day -day life instead of just moving. Because I've heard God come up every time you move. But what about in the middle? Like what about when you're there? What what about in the day-to-day? -day? What would you say to people? who are struggling with their day-to-day -day life, God showing up in the day-to-day -day, or walking with God in the day-to-day -day life. Sounds like what you're saying about walking and forgiveness is part of that. That's the last goal in my books. I have six goals. The last one is, is the prayer walk. My background's in communication and when we, when we have an idea, a thought or emotion, we want to communicate it to somebody, we package that. We, we deliver that message to the other person. I love you, or I'm, I apologize. It's that, it's that two-way street of communication. And we struggle with prayer. I think during the time we were at the church in Dallas-Fort Worth, and it was during the time when I telemarketed. The Lord started really teaching me about prayer and especially around the Lord's prayer. I, you know, a lot of churches use that in their liturgy. You know, Sunday after Sunday, uh, quote the Lord's prayer. We, uh, Tanya and I, my wife and I were watching a TV show the other day and they were trying to have a spiritual moment. And so they, they started uh, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And I thought that that is the model prayer. The disciples are walking along, they observe Jesus in prayer, and they say, Lord, teach us to pray. And he said, pray like this. Well, there's these different points in that prayer. 
I think as a rabbi, as a teacher, and living with these disciples, I believe what he did is over a number of days say, this, this is this point, and spend some time talking about that point, and this point, and this point. I don't think it's a, a prayer that lasts 30 seconds, that he says, pray this way. It's, it's a prayer that acknowledges who God is, worshiping him. It's a prayer saying, I, I have needs every day in my daily prayer, bread. I, I have problems in life, so, so lead me not into temptation. There's, there's various aspects of that that I think he spent over a period of time praying. So when we talk about being in a constant attitude of prayer, it's, it's being in that constant communication with him. Lord, I thank you for this meal today. I thank you. I, I enjoy coffee. I know you enjoy coffee. We're going to have the guy that, that uh, established my doctoral program in our home next weekend. He's already specified the type of coffee he wants. He, he makes his own coffee while he's here. It's like mud. I, mine's not quite as thick as his. But uh, we, thank you, Lord, for coffee. Thank you, Lord, for, uh, and, and I'm looking forward to your podcast tomorrow. The, the, what's the coffee that's sponsoring you now? Hunter's Coffee? Hunter's Blend Coffee. Hunter's, that's, a, we just put a little commercial in for them now. Okay, good. Um, it, it's, it's, as we walk through life, we stub our toe. We don't pay much attention to that toe until we stub it. And at that moment, Say it's in the middle of the night. I've gotten up to go to the bathroom. I stub my toe. My whole focus is now on that foot. Toe, I am so sorry I stubbed you. But then I get up in the morning and I stick it in a sock and stick it in a shoe and go on my way. Last night in a conversation with a dear friend, we're talking about the body of Christ, the church. You might correct me on this or one of your listeners I don't think church is used in the New Testament. It's ecclesia. It's the gathering. But what is more frequent there is the body of Christ. The church today sees itself as a church. That's why I, I saw a headline this morning before we got on the air with each other. More and more churches, the pastors are leaving. More and more churches, the doors are closing, not just because of COVID, but they're not functional in our society anymore. That's because they see themselves as the church. If the church corporate started seeing itself as the body of Christ, then our purpose is totally changed. Then it's not about that upfront platform speaker or the staged event it now becomes ministering to the people that sit in rows, looking at the back of each other's heads that may show up on a Sunday morning or whenever they meet, and they have a need, but then they leave with the same need unmet because they've watched the staged event. And I think during those years, that's what God was teaching me, is to walk with him daily instead of having that staged entertainment event. And maybe that's why we've kind of, Tanya and I've struggled in some of our church relationships is because we find people that are platform operators that we don't understand the code instead of walking with somebody with a personal relationship. And that's what God wants of us. He wants that personal relationship. That's why he sent his son to identify with us so that he can say, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Yeah, the, well, the stage thing 
I think part of it is the the um, the nature of our faith is is a, is a scriptural book focused thing, right? And that that requires um, some ex explication, mm-hmm. right? You have to read it, you have to understand it. And the, the earliest uh, synagogue service record that we have is in Luke 4, where Jesus takes the scroll of Isaiah. He goes up on the stage, as it were. That's where we get our stage stuff. It's from the synagogue. And it's from that early Jewish practice of reading the scriptures and praying. We've added, uh, you know, contemporary, <laughs> it looks like a rock concert now, which I don't like, and we don't have that at our church. We, we couldn't take it anymore. We just, you know, it, it, there, there's a lot of seeker-sensitive churches. They call them seeker-sensitive. We are at a finder-sensitive church, <laughs> which is <laughs> what happens after you know and so you how do you grow your faith and that's exactly what we're we're growing through right now is that we're our church is is dying feels like it's dying because of finances and uh, we may lose our our space Mm. and and it a lot of this had to do with the um the pandemic (laughs) yeah um you know um but um yeah so so we're trying to figure but we have a homeless ministry so that when you said about ministering to people with their needs i i i immediately thought of our homeless ministry which is a major focus of our church and um that really i i'm, I'm actually quite proud of that because we we do have we run the homeless ministry in in uh in this area and and um and the way we run it the lady that runs it is marcia her name is marcia she she's her deal is people not programs mm-hmm. and so just being with the homeless yes you're running a program yes but the whole point and that's the point of the stage thing too is it's supposed to facilitate the life of the body, like you're saying, right? The life of the body of Christ reaching out and meeting needs, spiritual and probably you can't meet spiritual needs absent the body totally. You can't just can't do it, you know? So, and there's so many people on the streets for various reasons. And so, you know, Marsha had it in her, um, we meet at the first Baptist or first Methodist, sorry, uh, church we meet in their parking lot and we just have a time where we, we try to meet needs. So we, we, and they're simple needs, you know, lotion, socks, uh, toothpaste, toothbrush, uh, little handheld mirrors. Um, and we had a laundry shower ministry where we had a trailer where they could take a shower and they could do laundry. And that was stolen last year. We, it was parked at the uh, first uh, 
EV free Fullerton, which is Chuck Swindoll's church. It was parked there and it was stolen. I don't know how much it costs to replace it, but we just don't have the money. If you're watching this and you want to meet that need, then you go to the vineoc.com and give to that and may put a message there that it's for replacing laundry shower trailer because it will go right to meeting the needs of the homeless people. I promise you <laughs> anyway, but, but yeah, all that, to, you know, there's a lot that was there. See, I think that's something that shortly after I became a Christian, I became aware that we, we, we look inside, we, we come to that place of meeting and we look inside and that's where we operate. But what Jesus did is he focused out. He went among the people and that's what the, what the people were looking for in that time of, of Roman rule is looking for a general and wow. Here comes a guy on the scene that can raise the dead, heal the sick, feed the multitudes. What a perfect general. No, 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 no. That's not what my kingdom's about. It's a different kingdom. It's a kingdom that will eventually establish an operation in Southern California that Luke's talking about where people can come and shower, where people can come and wash their clothes. They can get a sandwich. They can, it's like the Hispanic woman you were talking about that would come in and, and, and get the hot water and, and, and get the tea and, and tell you about the Lutheran pancake breakfast, not knowing that you were on security at the church. It, it's, it's, it's not. I, yeah, I looked, I looked homeless. Yeah, I, 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 I love that story. And you've got to write the book, write the book that God's giving you. You're such an awesome writer. I've introduced you to other people and, and some of the conversations, the way you do the narratives. So you're a mat. I am stiff as a writer. I don't flow. I'm too simple. You, you're a master. Thank you. <laughs> I'll take any compliment I get. Well, thank you. I, I, I tell you what Lance Waldau told me. Write the book, write the book, write the book God's given you. Took me 25 years. You can do it quicker. Now you've, you have written books and do you did, so you finally took Lance's advice? Finally did. I think you just gave us the title for this podcast, this episode, write the book that God gives you. There you go. Um, tell us about your book. Okay. Your books. Yeah, actually, I got two here. So uh, I need to send you number three. It just got published this week. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, two, two events click these all, actually three. Once Lance told me about 25 years ago, write the book. I've done a lot of radio, TV, film writing, did my doctoral thesis years ago, but didn't sit down to write something that you can hold in your hand as you're doing now. And Last spring, about a year ago, a pastor at our church, executive pastor, asked me to speak on goal setting. We have a school of ministry at our church. It's discipleship training. It's part of 3,000 schools worldwide, part of Global Ministries and Relief Incorporated. It's headed up by Dr. Leon Ruin from South Africa in Tampa. So we became one of his 3,000 schools. He also has a granting program, Correspondence Associates, Bachelor's, Master's, and Doctorate. Four years ago, I enrolled in the program. Well, 
last spring, uh, our executive pastor asked me to set on, speak on goal setting for prepar uh, preparation for our fall semester in the School of Ministry. I started going through all of my stuff on goal setting and came across a statement that comes from a mountain climber by, by the name of uh, uh, George Mallory, one of the first to try to scale Mount Everest. And he was asked, why do you want to climb Everest? And he said, because it's there. And that stuck in my mind. So I started researching Everest. It just triggered an interest. I watched some documentaries. Um, then I saw this as fitting an analogy for achieving goals. So climbing Mount Everest became the first part, and, and I ended up not doing one big book, but three smaller books, four parts. The base camp, which sits at 17,000 feet, higher than most mountains in Europe. Well, what is our base camp in the church? Well, it's salvation, and it's baptism, communion. That's part one. And I did this in these smaller format books because I saw a lot of Christian books were six by nine inch, about 100 pages. Book three is 160 pages. Uh, I started working on it, working on that message and doing more research than I needed for a 30 to 40 minute message. Dr. Leon was here in our home last August, getting ready to speak in our kickoff our fall semester in the School of Ministry. He said, what do you have left on your doctorate? And I told him, I'd already written one paper for him on preaching and teaching. And it was based off of uh, uh, Table Talk by Luther. I don't know if you've ever gotten into the Table Talk stuff by Martin Luther. Interesting concept. Anyway, he said, what do you have left? And I told him, he said, why don't you write that book that you've been talking about? Let's just count it finished. Well, I still had a few hours left on the doctorate. And, but I took all of my notes and started working six months ago on doing these three books. And so now have all three of them finished. COVID hit in January. I, I didn't meet my goal by the end of January, but I did have it published book three last week. It has four parts. Part one is base camp. Part two is ascending the mountain, getting up the mountain, which is the challenge for most people. Then part three is in the, uh, you don't have that in your hand, I'll have that to you soon, is descending the mountain. What happens, most people that get to the top that end up dying, and there's been over 300 deaths on the mountain, 0.4%, 0.4% deaths on the mountain. You enter the death zone. And at the top of the mountain where that death zone is, your cells, your body's consuming itself. You can't breathe. You've had to acclimate yourself to even get to that far. And most people that die, die coming down because they've run out of steam. They've used everything to get to the top, then what's left. So descending the mountain to me is where we have to, Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. The cross is a sign of death, dying to self so that he might be everything he's called us to be. 
dying to self, my own goals, my own aspirations, so that he can live his life through me. He says in Jeremiah, for I know the plans I have for you. They're good plans. That Not that you're a failure, but that you might be successful, that you might achieve what I have designed you to achieve, your proper purpose. I don't want to use this computer that we're talking on as a bookend. I want to use it for what it's designed. We're designed for a purpose. So it's going down that mountain. I need to die to who I am so that he might be everything he wants to be in my life. Going up the can you, mountain. Can you I give an example of that? Can you give an example of dying to yourself so that he can be everything? I think it's everything we've talked about today. Being that department chair, having a desire to be a university president when he's no, no, that's that's not my goal for you. Being a vice president, insurance investment. No, let's set that aside. You were pursuing a dream of financial rewards and doing all these things financially, like some of the guys in our business that had their own airplanes and their mansions and all that. No, that's not what I've designed you for. And so as as I start putting aside who I am so that he might be everything he is, then all of a sudden, what Graham Cook told us in Alaska, that I was going to be heading up a ministry school. Why did it take 25 years? Well, I asked him over breakfast in Arlington, Texas one time. I said, Graham, you said that in Alaska. It didn't happen. Why? He said, you need a church that will accept the vision that I've given you. God has shown me what God has given you. You need a church that will embrace that. We're a church now that has embraced that. They've embraced us coming out of the wilderness and said, we have been praying for you for 10 years. Well, I had been praying for them for 25 years. So now we're joined together and we have the school of ministry. We're looking at doing more and more out into the community. There's a huge homeless population in the city of Albuquerque, New Mexico. There, there, is, there is such a crime, uh, concentration of crime here. Uh, murders are rampant. Uh, the, the homeless, the, the, the police that have quit, just quit, walked away. We, we have a city that's nearly dysfunctional. Well, what do you do? Well, the church has been placed within the communities to bring life and to bring it more abundantly. So we're a little lighthouse doing that and trying to spark something that we can. Uh, you mind if I ask you a question? Sure, please do. Are you planning on moving or are you going to stay there? Moving. Because <laughs> after all the things you just said, that would be a reason to stay. Well, no, not, not. I mean, I know there's a lot of Democrats there. That's why all right. it's all messed up. God parked us at another church for a year here in town. We didn't know why. We sold our home in Ab uh, Abilene, Texas, moved here. And uh, you feel discontent there? Huh? You feel discontent again? Actually pretty content, but when we were at another church and we didn't, put your hands together like that. Put your hands together. What thumb is on top? What, which, which of your thumbs is on top? My, mine's my right thumb. You want me to do a hand, a, a thumb on top? Yeah. Okay. So, okay. So your what left thumb is on top? Yeah. 
my right thumb is on top. What does that mean? Nothing. It symbolizes California. The left hand is on top. There, there you go. The, le the left thumb is on top, but keeping if, the right I, one down. But if I interlace them the other way, it doesn't fit. Well, we were in another church and we didn't fit. Okay. Okay. So God, what's next? And was this the church that was praying for you for 10 years? No, 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 no. This is oh, okay. where it now is. Oh, the other, one, the other one, we just, we, we didn't coalesce. We, we were, okay. we were, well, wait, so they've been praying for you for 10 years. Why do you want to leave? We've established what we were sent here to do. Okay. And now it's time to you got pass a different, different mission. Yep. Pass the baton to the next person. And mine has moved now into more writing. And from that, and I have a website, spiritualwanderings with an S.com. There's a dash. Okay, we'll link that in the we'll link that in the description. Okay. Spiritual-wanderings.com. And I'm seeing doing more uh, more itinerant work. The fellow I'm working with, Dr. Leon, is uh, he's internationally known. He has he's planted churches all over the globe. As I said, he has 3,000 schools of ministry worldwide, and I see us doing more stuff together. And uh, he's he's just started this year a leadership training program, spiritual leadership training, that's pretty intensive, a 50 week course. And I see myself working with him curriculum design and. And uh, not sure exactly what it is, but he'll visit here uh, next week for four days and we'll explore some of those options. I asked my wife when we left the last church, a counselor who I greatly respect said, Paul, Tanya has followed you all over the globe. It's her turn. Have her pray where you're going to locate. And from there you can write and teach. And uh, so I told that, heard that and she said, Hill Country of Texas. So we don't know if it'll actually be the hill country, but it'll be someplace back in Texas. Sounds like she wants to go back to where you originally were. That's it. Yeah. I yanked her up long enough. She's ready. She didn't want to go originally, right? She's like she's like a horse when you release them; they want to go back to the barn. Well, I hope that she gets that house back if she wants it. <laughs> yeah, probably not there. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, how would you summarize? We don't have many we have a couple minutes left how would you summarize what you've learned in your life be flexible don't get so stiff and stuck in something that you can't still have a goal still explore your options still fulfill your purpose in life whatever that is and our purpose can change and uh I think it's being opened to doing that. It's excitement, uh, being open to the excitement that God has for us. All right. Well, I really appreciate you coming on, Dr. Paul Potter, PhD, D men. I can't believe they have they named the spiritual degree demon, but hey, <laughs> that's me. But yeah, we really appreciated you sharing your life stories with us. You've been, seems like everywhere in the United States and uh, you have so much that you could share with people. We really appreciate you coming on and I'll link your books. Are they on your website? 
They are on the website. Okay. Tell us again the website. Spiritual-wanderings.com. Dot com. Okay. We'll link that up and I'll make sure it's the right website before I link it up. All right. Well, Dr. Mather, thank you. Until next time, sir. God bless. God bless. Bye-bye.